There's a whole crowd of men out there who need this. Welcome to the case study. This case study will be marked down in time. Known to all as the record keeper of the historic rise of the woke man. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Actually, welcome, gentlemen. I don't know if any women will be listening to this, but quite frankly, I don't care. What I want is to see the change in man. Yes, that's hurt. The change in man. This is the Woke Man series, where you hear the stories of men who changed, who laid to rest their old ways of thinking, and who opened up and started expressing their truth. Revealing emotion, strengthening their self-awareness, and breaking free from the old paradigm of being a man. This is going to help men find the courage to open up, to break the shackles of toxic masculinity, and to guide them home in becoming a better man. Let's go. Oh, by the way, it's Luca. Luca Reedy from the Feeling Alive podcast. And The Woke Man is a sub-series. You're welcome. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to The Woke Man series. This is the greatest case study on man. The conscious journey of man is being painted through these episodes. We've got a goal of 100 men being interviewed, and so far we're at number 70. Now, today, I, uh, I, have, I have a guest with me today who is like many others but you know on the other side of the helping journey we can definitely see from this case study so far that we've got men that are you know operators um, mechanics salesmen we've also got a ton of coaches but today I have uh, Dr. John in who's a doctor in psychology has a PhD in psychology and it's very interesting one thing I really want to point out before we get into this is that you can be anywhere on any part of the journey and you have a story to tell and you have a journey yourself. And for those of you listening right now, you'll see a very interesting picture that we all are t- we all tend to go on a similar path back to ourselves, back to our true selves. And it's the journey that we you might not have embarked on yet, but I hope that this series and this episode in itself will encourage you to do the same. But without further ado, we're going to get stuck into it. Welcome, Dr. John, to the podcast. Thanks, Luca. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Welcome, man. First question I have for you, brother, is where did you grow up and where do you live now? So I grew up um, actually in the same city that I'm in now, San Ramon, California. So I grew up in Northern California, um, been here since 1967. I've gone different places, but I've always come back. So I went to college down in Southern California, studied for a bit in Edinburgh, Scotland, um, but, uh, Northern California just has a call to me. Mm. One thing I'm really interested is, um, to see, you know, well, I mean, everyone's from different parts of the world, but it's interesting to see everyone's different journey. I'm really interested to see, cause people know you now, you know, I've introduced you as Dr. John, I'm like, well, you know, this is the Wokeman series. I wonder what he, your journey is. It's going to be really interesting to see how you've got from where to where you are now. And I'm excited for that. Uh, John, how, how old are you right now? I am 53. 53. What were the best parts, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, or the 50s? Oh, boy. 
twenties uh, were good. Thirties were good. I got married and was having children. Twenties um, was more carefree and you know, kind of fun. Um, a lot of schooling. When I got to the forties, that was more about um, getting out of my marriage of sixteen years. So that was uh, one of the biggest challenges in my life. And then the fifties have been amazing. The past five, six years have been absolutely incredible. Wow. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. It's always interesting hearing what, you know, I'm 30 now and it's like, I hear people say, oh, the twenties are like confusing. You don't really know who you are. Thirties, you're starting to figure out who you are. The forties, you just don't care what anyone thinks and you're just going after what's true to you. And then it just goes up from there. Um, mm -hmm. Interesting asking that question. And John, what are you doing for a living right now? What do I do? So I'm a podcast of, I'm a host of a podcast called The Evolved Caveman. I, I'm writing a book right now on the man box culture and how we're socialized as boys, how it affects us as men. Mm. And my hypothesis is that it, traditional masculinity, tradition, traditional masculine ideology tends to undermine our shot at happiness. Uh, and then I coach men. Beautiful, man. And what's your background? So you're a doctor in psychology. Yeah, interesting. I, I got a, a, an undergrad in philosophy, which I thought prepared me to do absolutely nothing in life. <laughs> and uh, I enjoyed it. So that was good. But uh, then ended up getting a PhD in psychology at UC Berkeley. And about 15 years later, realized that the philosophy actually came into uh, came into play in the sense that I got into positive psychology, which is the scientific study of happiness and well-being. Mm. And it goes full circle all the way back to, you know, Aristotle and Plato talking about what is the good life. Yeah. Wow. And so why do you think you got into philosophy first? Were you naturally interested in like the meaning of life growing up? Yeah, you know, I, I fell in love with a professor there who had a philosophy and literature course. And it was unlike anything I'd ever taken. It was all these deep uh, fictional novels like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, mm. um, or Herman Hesse, um, Robert Persig, uh, Kobo Abe, uh, Milan Kundera. And we would just read these books and talk about the philosophy in them. And I was just blown away. And, and it, to me, um, this professor uh, was a child prodigy. Uh, I think he graduated from college at 16, got a PhD at 21. Uh, got married, had a nervous breakdown by, you know, mid thirties, was actually hospitalized for a couple of years and then learned how to mellow out and kind of enjoy life. And I ran into him probably in his fifties mm -hmm. and he was just an amazing guy, super intelligent. And so I kind of followed in his footsteps and just wanted to use philosophy as a way to, um, to grow as an individual, to make sense of the world and myself. Wow. Interesting, man. Interesting. And then, so how did you get into psychology? What made you want to do that? You, you, you saw an opportunity? Um, well, actually I was confused coming out of or coming out of undergrad. I thought that I would go into law school. Um, I worked in a law firm for, I don't know, nine months and realized there, there's too many ethical uh, rabbit holes here. And I, I didn't, I, I was a pretty ethical uh, young man and I, I didn't want to, I just had trouble with the um, uneven unevenness of the judicial system, um, the justice system, where if you had enough money, you could buy the best lawyers and, you know, get off even if you were guilty. Mm. Um, and so I, I was working at my dad's dental office when I was about 21. 
And he had a patient that was a professor at a local college. And she said, why don't you come sit in on a psychology class of mine? And I said, great. So I sat in on it and I loved it. And I, I thought, yeah, this is great. Because I'd always wanted to serve people, to help people, you know, to kind of leave the world a better place than I'd found it. Um, it's a strong value that comes from my parents. And it seemed to me that this was a really good way to do it. I, I've never been um, motivated terribly by money. Yeah. It was, it was a stronger push to me to help others. Also impact. Wow. That's beautiful, man. What's your religious views, spiritual views? I'm interested to hear because you study uh, philosophy and... Um, so I, I was raised Lutheran, but my parents were not very big on organized religion. Um, you know, I think I might've gone to church more when I was a kid, when I slept over at my friend's houses than with my parents. Um, and I, I would say I'm spiritual, but not religious. I think that having a belief in something larger than ourselves is really important for our happiness and purpose and meaning. Um, I'm just not a huge fan of organized religion because I kind of bristle at people telling me what to believe, how to pray and mm. things like that. Yeah, I feel that, man. I resonate with that. Uh, next question, brother. What's one thing you're really good at? Oh, um, I think I'm really good at um, creating rapport with people because I, I don't take myself too seriously. I'm pretty authentic. I'm pretty quick to uh, reveal my own shortcomings. I have a lot of different ways to connect with people, uh, whether it's music or literature or sports or pop culture. Um, and, and so I, I think that I've worked pretty hard at putting people at ease mm. and I guess I, well, I guess my empathy as well. So I, I can feel what other people feel pretty well. Mm, that's powerful, man. I can tell that as soon as I jumped on, like it's always like when I jump on a, the zoom with someone that I haven't met before or been introduced like you and I had, it's always like that moment where you sort of quickly gauge someone on how they respond. And you were just like, yeah. Hey, how you going? And I'm like, Whoa, very comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I felt that straight away, that, that rapport, which is beautiful. John, what's one of your biggest fears right now? Well, I don't know about, let's see, I'm torn between right now or in the recent past. Um, right now, I, I guess a bigger fear would be, um, you know, that we have an environment to leave to our children, but that's kind of vague and intellectual. Uh, to be more personal, I would say um, one of my biggest fears in the recent past is the fear of not being enough. Mm. Um, you know, whether it's not being smart enough, not being, um, I don't know, fear of disappointing others, fear of being judged negatively. Um, mm. I, I think, yeah, fear. I, I mean, you know, I, my first panic attack was at Cal when I got into the PhD program and, you know, found myself in a conversation with a seventh year student, which means he'd been in a PhD program at Cal for seven years. Jesus. And I couldn't think of anything to say to him. And I was like, so what's your dissertation on? And he started talking. And after about eight words out of his mouth, I was like, oh my God, I have no idea what this fool is saying. And I just, you know, immediately the thoughts started coming like, you're not smart enough. You don't belong here. You're not worthy. And then the panic attack kicked in. Um, so I, I think it's, it's interesting because I've always tried to prove myself up until recently and 
you know, you can, and, and I think the mind works by comparison largely and, and men and masculinity definitely do that. And I think you can always find someone that's smarter than you, or you, mm-hmm. you think they're smarter than you or bigger than you, stronger than you, better looking wife, hotter car, you know, bigger house, more money. Um, and that those upward social comparisons really create a lot of misery and suffering. Mm, I feel that man. A lot of people, I've been caught in that as well, that comparison mindset. I know a lot of people listening. Mm-hmm. It's what, how old were you in that point when you started your PhD? Were you, uh, 23, 23. So you're sort of still figuring out yourself as well. And, and you know, yeah. you're good at and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I feel you. Man. Well, and how smart am I? Right. Cause it's like to go from, I went, my undergrad was at Pomona college and the students there were quite smart. And then I went to St. Mary's for a year and a half and a master's in counseling. And that was not a problem. And then you go to, you know, Cal in a PhD program and there's only five people in my whole class. Mm. And so all of a sudden you're at like the 99.9th percentile of IQ of the people around you. And I was like, holy shit, like, I'm not really sure this is the right place for me. Mm, interesting. Interesting. John, because you're never smart enough in your own head. Well, I mean, we're always critical. We're so critical of ourselves, aren't we? Of like mm-hmm. doing good enough, not doing enough. I mean, but but if you look at that, is that that motive? Is that the if you think about that, having that motive is what drives us to be better and and to get to your level that you're at. If you didn't have that, would if you didn't have that ability? To- yeah, I think anxiety is a great motivator. And, you know, I see a lot of the high achievers that I work with have a high degree of anxiety that pushes them to excel. And and the problem with that is at some point you've got to learn some self-acceptance and some self-love. And and the question I hit a lot of my male clients with is, okay, so when is enough enough? Mm. Whether it's, you know, money or climbing the ladder or fame or whatever it is, it's like, okay, so have you achieved the goal that you set out to? Do you even know what the goal is or do you just keep moving the, the goal line? Mm, mm, it's interesting. Is it a, a philosophical question I ask myself is ambition, you know, I'd love to hear what you think about this. Is ambition some, the, 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 the desire for ambition, is it to be seen because you, you're not want, you haven't been seen growing up and is it to be seen, like say the ambition to do something, is that to be seen or is that an underlying motive for your divine purpose? I, I mean, I think, I, I don't know, I could go a lot of ways with that. It's a great question. Um, I think ambition, like if I think back to going into the PhD program at Cal, one of the couple of the reasons I went in was to prove myself, like I wanted the academic challenge. And the other reason was I kind of wanted respect. Like I thought that would be a way to get respect. And then I got the PhD and, you know, I'm, I'm sure I got respect from some people, but the other thing that I got that I didn't anticipate was, I think it was quite intimidating to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't what I was looking for. And, and so, you know, I've spent, I don't know, 20 plus years trying to kick out that pedestal and, you know, telling people like, just, you know, call me John, that's fine. Like I, you know, cause I'd rather have that authentic connection than, you know, be in a position of power over someone saying, do this because I say so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So I don't know if that answers the question, but that question alone could take an hour to drill into. You know, it's a question I've been asking for a long time now. So, but 
we won't we won't probably get to it in five minutes. But I was just interested to hear. But I, I do think it's you know there's a balance between having ambition and striving and setting goals and um, being content with where you are and allowing whatever's arising to arise in the moment without judgment. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's a really difficult balancing act. Yeah, yeah, it's. Yep, it is. It's something I've been paying attention to a lot lately is that balance of life. Like I think we live in that Mm -hmm. polarity where we've sometimes we've got to have self-love, sometimes we've got to have discipline and that push-pull and been testing that in my own life is like, yep, today I push. But I think that comes with a deeper level of self-awareness where one day I push, one day I don't. (laughs) Well, and I think part of it to me is, and one of the things I talk about with, with clients is, you know, it's really about the effort that you put into, let's say, pursuing a certain goal Mm. and then having um, non-attachment to the outcome. Mm -hmm. So for instance, let's say you're an entrepreneur, you could put your best effort in towards making a successful company, but something comes up like the economy crashes or COVID and it destroys all your plans. Well, that's not really your fault. So if you focus on the effort, I think you can pull out um, more self-acceptance, more pride, more positive emotions and less of the self-loathing from the outcome, which is uh, I failed. Yeah, that's powerful, man. Reward the uh, effort. I like that. Uh, well, next question for you, sir. What's your favorite quote? Um, this, you probably got some deep, some deep philosophical ones here. Oh boy. Um, well, I, you know, I've I did a talk a few years ago that was, um, I think, quite meaningful. It was on the different mindsets and how powerful they are. Um, and it, you know, kind of starts with the fixed versus growth mindset, a la Carol Dweck. And then it moved to how powerful mindsets are in about five different areas, pain management, stress, aging, um, weight loss. And it, it made me realize that these mindsets that we have, these core beliefs, these primal world beliefs, whatever you want to call them, um, affect all of us and they usually originate from childhood or from a traumatic experience and they they affect almost every interaction of every day that we have and the cool thing about them is that you can choose to adopt a new mindset in a second Mm. it's just a choice and so one of the quotes that i love is henry ford you know whether you think you can or think you can't Mm -hmm. you're right Mm -hmm. yeah man that's one of my favorite it's just outlines exactly your your power your sovereignty and and the power of your belief i love that man what's a what's a conscious man to you john this is an interesting um you know i think a conscious man to me is one that has looked objectively non-judgmentally at his own masculinity and asking which parts of my masculinity are serving me and those that i love and the world around me and which parts maybe not so much because I, to me that, you know, the man box culture, the way that we're socialized as kids um, becomes a part of our DNA. It's so close to us. It's the air we breathe Mm -hmm. and we don't even realize that we're wearing it as a mask. We don't even realize that it's used to manipulate us. We don't realize that it influences everything we say and and all of our actions. Um, And so I think to get a little bit of air or distance between ourselves and that mask of masculinity is incredibly important just to ask, you know, for instance, is my belief in self-reliance, is that serving me or is it harming me or to what extent? Mm -hmm. And so I I try and break down all these um, man box traits, I suppose, 
on a one to 10 scale. So for instance, self-reliance, if you think of that from one to 10, with one being I'm completely reliant on other people to 10 being I'm, you know, I'm my own island and I rely on no one. Where am I in that one to 10 scale? Because I think, you know, like growing up, I had a friend whose dad was so self-reliant and so traditionally masculine that he would pull out his own teeth in the garage when they started to abscess. And you could say that's incredibly self-reliant, but you could also argue that it's um, self-destructive and self-harming in some ways. And, you know, I'm all for self-reliance, but I think, you know, we need some moderation. So maybe you want to be at like a six or seven, not at like a 10 or a one. And so I, I think to look at some of these traits like, you know, homophobia, you know, how do you feel about feminine qualities in yourself? Um, how do you feel about toughness, stoicism, not feeling, um, not having any needs, not asking for help, um, not being seen as weak, you know, some of these things, I, I mean, like the provider, right? Like Gender traditional right. masculine ideology says men should provide for the family. I think in general, that's a good value. I've also seen men, that go way too far with it. And the very people that they're trying to support now have become angry and resentful of them because all their time is spent at work. Mm -hmm. Just like coming back within you and seeing the, I mean, you're talking about all these traditional masculine um, qualities, right? And it's like seeing where you sit on this scale and is this is this beneficial to you and you and your environment right now? And, and, and just being really honest with yourself, really, isn't it? Being really honest and reflective. Yeah. Well, and, and one of the things that's interesting to me about this that I'm trying to disentangle lately. So there's a difference between sex and gender and sexuality. So sex is male, female, or, you know, there's some other variations to it, but gender is masculine, feminine. It's, to me, it's mostly socially constructed. It's things we learn as we grow older from others or from media or, you know, society. And then sexuality is who are you attracted to sexually? And that, you know, is on the spectrum. But what I found is that there's a difference generally between liberals and conservatives where conservatives seem to think that masculinity is innate, yeah. that we're born with it somehow, that it's part of who we are and that we're unhappy to the extent that we don't, um, we don't develop ourselves in keeping with that innate masculinity. And, you know, if you drill down to that, it's basically about testosterone. And th there's some issues with that um, thinking of testosterone as driving our innate masculinity in the sense that both women and men have testosterone as well as estrogen. Mm -hmm. um, and we know from studies of like Robert Sapolsky that testosterone doesn't drive aggression necessarily. It's, it's sort of if you have enough aggression, if you have enough testosterone, it allows for aggression. But if you titrate testosterone, if you increase it, it doesn't increase aggression necessarily. Interesting. And so, and then the liberals think that, you know, masculinity is more socially constructed and therefore more open to change. So I'm just kind of playing around with this and trying to make some sense of it uh, yeah. for the book. Wow. And that's, but it, again, you know, that goes back to a core belief, right? If I, if my core belief is masculinity is innate yeah. versus it's socially constructed, that it changes everything that I look at in terms of masculinity. So if you look at the core belief, I, I, you know, maybe we can just quickly touch on this. Where are you in your work that you've done, your research that you're, you're doing? That core belief, is that constructed from just the social, cultural, familial experiences that person's had in life? So, yeah. And, and I think also it's not, 
people aren't aware of their core beliefs. So they're just assumptions that you're acting on and you're not even aware that this is a choice or something that can change. And it shows up how you deal with, how you act, how you speak, how you interact with your environment. Yeah. I mean, let me give you an example of a core belief that I talk with clients about a lot. Um, Let's say you believe that people are generally untrustworthy or people are generally assholes versus people are generally good and trying their best. So I've had clients that are kind of depressive that have this core belief of people can't be trusted. People are bad, let's say just at a low, at a low level. So if you go through your day like that, let's say you go to the supermarket and you don't interact with anyone in line. You don't really interact with the cashier. You just pay your money, get your change and you leave. No one benefits. Um, same thing when you go to get some coffee, same thing when you're talking with people at work, you're just, you're not that engaged in the um, interactions and you're trying to get out of there quicker rather than hang out and get to know people mm-hmm. versus if I believe that people are generally good and trying their best and are honest, then when I go to the supermarket, I might interact with people in the line around me. And this is just little small talk, right? But if I do it well, then when I talk with them or I talk with the cashier, I'm trying to get a smile out of him or her. For no other reason other than we both win if I do that, because if I can engage the cashier and get a smile out of him or her, and then I walk away with a smile, he stays with a smile, and we both win. We get a small, positive, upward emotional boost. Now, multiply that out hundreds of times over thousands of days, and you see this cumulative effect that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's just one core belief. Very powerful, man. Very powerful. What's one thing challenging you right now, John, in life? Oh, challenge. Um, I'm working on a book right now that I mentioned earlier. I'm about halfway through and um, staying focused on that has been challenging. Um, and, and I think, you know, there's a little bit of anxiety or, or fear about it because, you know, I, I remember going to a National Speakers Association conference years ago and there was a Hall of Fame speaker there who was talking and saying, you know, what you really want is a topic that will split your audience where, you know, half the people love you and half hate you because the the half that love you will talk about you and share you with others. Well, for me, that's always been a little difficult because I, you know, wanted to please people, didn't want to disappoint, you know, didn't want to make anyone upset. And I've had to work with that idea for several years being like, yeah. And you know, it's not the best way to go. I think the best way to go is to stick to your values and be true to them. And so I, this book is going to kind of split people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I did an interview with Ron Levant, um, who's a professor at university of Akron, probably one of the leading experts on masculinity. And he was saying that he did, um, the American psychological association guidelines for working with men and boys. Mm. And when those came out, he got death threats because people were so offended and thought, you know, you're trying to feminize men and you're trying to make us pussies. And like the the threats he got were disgusting. That's incredible. eh? And you know, it's just, you know, what is it about masculinity that forces people to make threats like, uh, well, I won't even say what he got, but you know, to wish you dead and suffering, because you're talking about a different way of looking at masculinity. Mm-hmm. 
Why do you think that threatened them so much? I, I think part of it is because we don't make a distinction between sex and gender. Okay. So if male is masculinity and they're fused together, then to try and take a look at masculinity means you're attacking me as a man. Mm. And you know what I, I made the mistake once on social media of putting out the phrase toxic masculinity. And I was like, Oh shit, I'm never doing that again. And, and I get it. Right. Because if I talk about toxic masculinity, then men are like, they're instantly on the defensive mm -hmm. and you, you can't get them to look at themselves or the concept of masculinity if they're defensive, which, you know, men, well, we, that's a whole nother story. But, um, <clears throat> and so, you know, what I do now is I talk about culture and man box culture and people that subscribe to this traditional masculine ideology, yeah. which is, you know, uh, don't be feminine, don't be gay, be stoic, be tough, you know, kind of those pillars. Um, but those men that subscribe to those older notions or traditional notions tend to have some um, mental health issues. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, I mean, it's interesting. I was in a men's group a few weeks ago and was because I, one of the, the pushbacks that I've gotten is you're trying to wussify men. And I'm like, you know, my response to that is no, you haven't been listening. What I'm, what I'm espousing or what I'm arguing for is to give each man the ability to shift gears to best fit the situation that they're in. So if you're playing rugby or football or soccer, like fine, be traditionally masculine, you know, be tough, be stoic, ignore your pain, be aggressive. That works in that environment. And if you're going to go home and you've got a young daughter who's just fallen down and skinned her knee, you need the ability to be kind and caring and nurturing and quiet. And then if you're going out to date night with your spouse, you need the ability to be empathetic and sympathetic and a good listener and supportive. So we need to be able to have the ability to shift gears to fit the situation. And so I was talking to this men's group and this guy flipped out about my use of the word or the phrase traditional masculinity. And she was like, well, you know, who, who, who gets to decide how to, what traditionally masculine is? <laughs> well, it's kind of in the phrase. I mean, it's what has been traditionally masculine. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't decide it. It's just kind of what culture has decided. It's not an individual decision. Wow. Interesting. Um, so it's it, on either side, it can trigger either on the left and on the right. Because I mean, you're in a men's group, man. Like this is where we're coming yeah. to express openly. <laughs> yeah. And without judgment, I'm like, whoa, like I didn't really see that coming. Wow. Yeah. That's really interesting. Cause I've, I've put stuff, a lot of stuff out there with this series and I haven't really found any kickback. So, I mean, man, maybe uh, if I'm, because you're doing a lot of research on it and you, and your educational background, I think people are like, it's even more threatening to people because they're like, you know, as soon as you say, I've got a PhD, everyone's just like, Oh, cool. Let's like, this guy's got notoriety around here like and if he's doing something that's really looking into my shit you know like yeah it's but i feel it's scary yeah yeah i feel i feel for that guy i can see i can understand i can relate uh this next one we've got two more questions from this section of this this um interview what does unconditional love mean to you john oh that's a good question um Let me, let me, let me, since we're talking about masculinity and men, let me put it in um, a male framework or a masculine framework. I, I think that unconditional love 
for men means getting a handle on our anger, irritability, frustration, resentment, grudges, um, because you have, we have no shot at being unconditionally loving and accepting when our primary emotional response to the world is some degree of anger. Mm. And so let me, let me put that in context because as we're socialized in this man box culture, what happens when you can tell me if this is true for you in Australia, but um, when we're growing up and think, you know, it kind of starts at a very innocent level in at the age of about five, when you first start getting introduced to peers, but it really accelerates in middle school and high school. And so if you show too much sadness or fear when you're growing up, someone, usually a peer, will say something like, dude, don't be a little bitch. Don't be a pussy. Don't be a little girl, which all of which are the feminine, right? Mm -hmm. So don't be anything associated with the feminine. And you get that a few times and you're like, ah, that hurts. I don't really like it. It's embarrassing. And you jump back in the man box. On the other side, if you show too much love, joy, romanticism, excitement, flamboyance, someone will say something like, dude, don't be, don't be such a fag. Don't be so gay. Forgive the slurs, but that's what we get. Mm -hmm. And again, you jump back into the man box because you're like, shit, I don't like that. What I found is men hate to be embarrassed. And so what we're left with that we can publicly display emotionally without fear of being humiliated are, I would argue, three things. Lust. She's so hot. Look at that ass. Stress. Because when I, argue, when I say I'm stressed, it implies I'm busy and important. Or the big one, anger. And so most of our emotions get channeled through that anger lens. Mm. I mean, anxiety, embarrassment, hurt, guilt, shame. And, and so most of what we know, most of what we display is somehow anger related, irritation, frustration, annoyance. But until we get past that, I don't think we have a shot at unconditional love. Mm. Mm -hmm. and, and I can tell you a story, which kind of, it baffled me at the time. I mean, I remember I had young kids and young son at the time, and he would be doing something that I knew was putting him at risk of injury. So he'd be like walking on a you know, three foot high brick wall or something. And I'd be like, Hey man, don't do that. You're going to hurt yourself. And he'd ignore me. And then he'd fall off and hurt himself. And then he'd start crying and screaming. And there's something about that crying and screaming, which hits men deeply. We really, most of us don't like it. It really makes us uncomfortable. And my response to my son getting injured at first was I would feel anger. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, why am I feeling anger? Like, that doesn't make any sense. And it's not helpful. So I, I had to catch that response and learn to change it. Hmm. And have you looked into why that was coming up? I, well, I think it was frustration. I think the, the emotional response from one of your children getting hurt is so strong and overpowering that you go back to, man, if you had just listened to what I was telling you, that wouldn't have happened. Almost like I was wrong. Which, yeah. Yeah. And, and you ignore the fact that, well, maybe he needed to, to fall and hurt himself to learn about, I don't know, gravity or balance. <laughs> yeah. um, it's one of the best ways we learn. Yeah, man. Yeah. Oh, that's very interesting. Uh, what about a greater power? We touched on this very early on. Do you believe in a greater power? And, and what is that to you, John? Um, yeah. And, and I think it's, it's changed throughout the years back when I was in college. Um, I, when I was a kid, I used to think it was like a man with a beard sitting on a throne in, in the clouds. And then in college, I got interested in world religions and just kind of, I had the thought that it, it doesn't make any sense to me to have an all knowing, all powerful God that, um, 
would put one culturally relevant icon or teacher into one area of the world and then say, that's the one true pathway to me. Mm. And, you know, if you grew up in China, for example, and we're talking about Jesus, if you grew up in China and you never hear about Jesus, well, sorry, tough shit. Mm. You're out of luck. Mm -hmm. You're going to burn in hell. Like it just doesn't make it. It's not very smart. Oh, interesting. It's not a good plan. And, and so my thought was, if I'm an all-knowing, all-powerful God, I would put culturally, culturally relevant icons throughout the world and provide different pathways to me. And, you know, because humans are humans, we'd probably kind of mess up the messages a little bit or they'd get misinterpreted. And so I just started looking at world religions and looking for the commonalities throughout most of the world religions. And I thought, you know, it's a pretty good way to go. Um, so I, you know, it's funny, one of the things I'll like, I'll pray, you know, every night I'll, I'll pray in my head to God, my God. Um, and one of the things I talk to clients is about is one of the ways to pray is this praying from a place of lack, like God, give me the strength, give me the courage, help me to deal with this. I can't take it anymore. You know, that kind of prayer. And I'll try and shift them towards praying with gratitude, with appreciation of God, thank you for giving me the courage, assuming you already have what you need mm. and training your mind to look for things that are going well in your life, things that you're grateful for, things that you have as opposed to what you don't have. Mm -hmm. Because the more we can train our minds over time and get in the habit of finding things in our life on a daily basis that are going well, the more our mind just begins to do it automatically and we overcome that negativity bias, which is without training them, our minds over-focus naturally on negative shit, you know, negative emotions, negative thoughts, negative self-definitions, like I'm an asshole. Um, and so it's, it's really one of the most important habits I would say to put into play. And it doesn't have to be through prayer. That's just a, a good way to, to do it if you already pray. But you can just look for, you know, three things that went well today or three things that are grateful that you're grateful for each day. Mm, that's beautiful, man. I love that perspective. Now, let's get into your personal journey, John. The first question is, and I use this term loosely, um, what did your life look like as, as unwoke, unconscious? And when was that? And, and how does that look compared to who you are today? Oh... Well, I, I think for many years, you know, I, I tried. So if I'm unwoke, <laughs> and that's assuming that I'm woke now, which is a big assumption. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, geez, if I'm completely unwoke, when I was completely unwoke, I was, you know, a kid, a teenager um, in my young 20s. And I think that I was trying to adapt and fit into that man box culture. Mm. And I mean, I, I remember being you know, 12, 11, and I got punched in the stomach by the school bully for, I'm sure I was being a smart ass, but I wasn't being a smart ass to him. He just kind of came up and randomly punched me in the stomach, which, you know, interestingly changed my core belief from the world's a safe place to shit, the world, like the world's full of people that can just come up and punch you for no reason. Mm. Um, but I remember I started crying and I couldn't stop. And at that point I was like, you know, screw these emotions. I'm going to leave these in the gutter. Like I'm not feeling anything anymore. I'm just going to, I'm not showing any emotion again ever because they just humiliated me. Um, and 
it's the first strategy that almost every man I've ever talked to has is suppressing those emotions, especially when they embarrass you. But it's, it's a fool's errand, right? It doesn't last for long. Uh, um, so I, I think that, you know, I was, I was playing, you know, a bunch of sports. I was, you know, trying to hook up with girls. I was, you know, one of the things we do in our group of guy friends is, you know, the way that we communicate is put down one-upmanship, sarcasm, teasing. Um, there's no real depth there. Um, and why well, there is loyalty, but there's not really any depth of connection. And so I think oh, I was playing the achievement game. So I was busting my ass to try and get good grades and be successful and play sports. And I was student body president. And, you know, I realized at the age of 17 that I was like, I'm not really feeling this whole success thing. Like, where's the room in this success idea for things like joy, love, relaxation, um, it, you know, I, I found out that I was, you know, kind of miserable, stressed and exhausted a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And so that was like pretty early on in your, in your life where you started to switch, right? In the early twenties. Yeah. I started question at about 17 and I didn't have any answers for a long time, but started, that's why I got in philosophy. That's why I got in psychology was like, what is this whole, this, this story we're being force fed? Cause it just doesn't make any sense to me, you know, and the story is basically, you know, get good grades go to the best college you can, get a good job, make as much money as you can, get married, have kids, make more money, get promoted, and then you retire at 65, and then you'll be happy. Yeah. And you know, I was working with all these men in their 40s and 50s who had done all that and were miserable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It starts with a question, doesn't it? It just like you've, you know, mm-hmm. it starts with a feeling, and then you question the feeling, and then it can lead you down another path if you're willing to go there. Uh, so that's going to, I mean, a lot of people listening to this right now are going to resonate with that because they're probably asking the same question. Like, this isn't right. This isn't okay. I'm not, yeah. I'm not feeling this. And then it just, you go, well, it led me to philosophy. It led me to my education. It led me to ask a bigger question. And now it's ultimately led you to, to here, here now. Uh, and obviously people watching this or listening to this can see that the man you are now is very different to that. Um, it's very interesting. What What was your biggest... What was your biggest vice through that period, John, through that younger version of yourself? Vice? Mm. Um, you know, in my 20s, I was, you know, partying a lot, drinking, smoking, um, smoking a lot of weed. Um, I was even trying um, certain psychedelics to try and see if that could help, you know, kind of break the bonds. Um, and it's funny because I think things like mushrooms can be helpful for uh, that sort of journey, partly because, or largely because, you know, when you take mushrooms, it gives you the firm belief that everything on the planet is interconnected. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really useful core belief in terms of treating others with respect, in terms of treating the environment with respect. Um, And yeah, just realizing that you can't exist on your own. Yeah. Yeah. That's insane. I've had similar experiences like that. And I know it's obviously starting to really develop that area of um, with the work of, of psilocybin in, in mental health awareness and treatment. It's been so empowering. Uh, it just mm-hmm. like it has been so, so, so empowering. It's funny. Do you feel like those in the, in the work that you're doing now, the study that you're doing now, do you feel like that, that uh, the drinking, the partying, the smoking, 
was you know form of form of dependency was that connected to your lack of connection to your environment that lack of connection to yourself I think, you know, and I've talked to a lot of clients about this. I think that that's part of it. I think the other part of it is, uh, you know, and I'm biased, I'm kind of an emotion geek, but um, I look at every trigger that we have to use as being emotionally driven. Yeah. So think of in the past, you know, why did you smoke? Why did you drink? And, you know, I can, it's because I was excited. It was Friday night. It's because I was sad. It's because I was angry. It's because I was stressed. It's because I was bored. Um, it's because I was nervous that I was going to go talk to a girl. Mm. Uh, I mean, I, I think that every, every use, every substance abuse or substance usage has an emotional driver to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. And it's when you start to control your emotions or go within, start to reflect, really heal, whatever that is you start to become more aware of your emotions. And if you're more aware of your emotions, a natural byproduct of that is the less, less dependent on those other substances, alcohol, smoke, cigarettes, right? That's clearly in your situation and mine. So that's very interesting. I like that approach. I can definitely see that. What about the um, being emotional geek? Um, What emotion challenged you most in that? in that period of your life, anxiety, anger, shame, guilt, fear? Uh, well, so a uh, great question. You know, if you, we were talking about inside out, um, the, the Pixar movie a while back or prior to this conversation. And, you know, one of the things they got right in that movie is that each of us have a signature emotion, a primary emotion. So if you look at the, you know, the little control panel in each of the main characters, there's a different emotion at the helm of the control panel for each person. So for Riley, the 13 year old girl, at first it's joy and it's, you know, because of puberty, it gets all kind of jumbled up. And I think towards the end, it's kind of sadness and joy. The, the mom, the main emotion at the helm of her control panel is sadness and the dad it's anger. And so, you know, if I look at my journey, it's interesting to me that I think when I was younger, I started out with sadness slash depression at the helm of my remote control panel or my control panel. Uh, Then it became fear slash anxiety. And then later on, it became anger Mm -hmm. slash irritability. And so I I think I have nothing to back this up other than my own experience, but I have a hunch that one of the major life goals out there if we're seeking to be happy and content ultimately is to get through each of those primary signature emotions mm. so i've hit them all you've hit them all you've hit them all <laughs> you say that well first of all for the people listening before we didn't introduce this uh but you were the consultant to the pixar movie uh, inside and out inside out yes um, and that was obviously, I mean, I don't know if anyone's watched that, but it's genius because it, it does just paint the picture of how we really feel on the inside. You know, we've got this, this really cool way of illustrating it at least. So, But you talk a little bit about that uh, anxiety. Would you say that fear maybe? Because, I mean, do you look at fear as being an underlying root of anxiety? Like you're actually... Yeah. Okay. It's a good question. Um, so there's a difference between emotion and mood. So emotions are short-lived. They typically have a cause and they're supposed to leave after eh, one to three to five minutes. Okay. So you're in the woods. 
um, or, or let's say you're in Australia, you're crossing the road and a big old snake slithers out in front of you, you feel fear, you run away. Well, if it's me anyway, I feel fear and I run away. So the cause is the snake. And then, you know, the fear comes, it motivates an action script, like get the hell out of here. Um, and then you take off and then ideally, you know, you kind of exhale and let the fear go. Mm-hmm. Mood on the other hand are longer in duration moods are longer in duration and don't necessarily have a cause. So, um, I look at fear as the emotion, anxiety is the, the mood, um, anger is the emotion, irritability is the mood, um, sadness is the emotion, depression is the mood, not in a clinical sense, just in a sad mood. Mm-hmm. Um, happiness is the emotion, contentment is the mood. So moods are often like less intense than emotions. But I mean, if someone had told me back when I was like 17, that dude, you're depressed, it's just a mood. There's no cause for it. It's just how you're made. It's just your moods go up and they go down and people have different mood cycles and whatever. It would have really helped because I spent so much time looking for the why. Mm-hmm. Why, why do I feel this sad? Like, and I can come up with kind of half-assed reasons like, oh, I got a C on a test. But it, it was disproportionate to what I was feeling. Mm-hmm. And if I had known that dude, it's just a mood, like just, you know, you woke up on the wrong side of the bed today, or you're a little bit depressed today, or you're a little bit irritable or grouchy. It, it's freeing in the sense of just go with it and, you know, let your loved ones know, Hey mom, you know, I'm in kind of a grouchy mood today. It has nothing to do with you. You know, I think that's two favors there. You're letting people know how you feel and you're saying it's not your fault. It's not related to you. And so then they have freedom to either help you out Mm-hmm. or and support you or just leave you alone and give you the space and i would do this in my 20s even at work i would go in and say and i knew my coworkers pretty well but you know i'm kind of bummed out today or i'm you know kind of grouchy today or you know woke up in a shitty mood and just it's, it does people a huge favor just to say hey it's not about you mm-hmm. because we tend to take how other people feel so damn personally when in fact 95 percent of the time it has nothing to do with us yeah. Did you used to take out your emotions on people around you in the early days before you were um, doing this work now? Only, only infrequently. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, you know, I, one of the things that I've realized is that we take out our emotions, the worst, most uncomfortable, shittiest emotions on those we love the most. Yeah. And, you know, usually it's, you know, when you come home after work and, you know, your self-control is tiring and you know maybe you're lonely maybe you've had a couple beers or whatever but we know that family isn't going anywhere so that seems to be the safest place to unload our emotions it's not the fairest but um that just seems to be where most of them come out Mm -hmm. you know you're having some real difficulty with emotional management skills if you're doing that at work also yeah so because you talked a little bit about and i know we're going to wrap it up two seconds here Uh, yeah you talked a little bit about um that that fear that you had or that that lack of worthiness that uh when you're in of not being smart enough when you're in doing your phd your dissertation did that ultimate feeling of anxiety was that connected to something back in your childhood growing up did you like did you need to sort of please someone or something or prove <laughs> to someone or something oh yeah absolutely um yeah i think largely it was about trying to please my parents that my parents were kind of hard driving, high achievers, uh, difficult to please, um, mm. 
and kind of no nonsense. And so I, you know, you just grow up um, not really certain of the ground underneath you, especially if one of your parents is irritable and you're not really sure what to expect from them emotionally, you kind of get that walking on eggshell feeling, which creates anxiety later on down the road. Cause you're not really sure, like, am I going to get in trouble for this? Or am I going to get like, is this no big deal? Or am I going to get praised? And so you're always kind of waiting for that shoe to drop, which creates, um, yeah, fear, anxiety, Mm. stress. Very interesting. Uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah. It's something that I've, I've spoken a lot about, you know, that, that question is always, it's the emotion has always had some looking back at all the men who have interviewed so far majority. And it'd be interesting to look at the the answers, the statistics of this is mostly they they've connected it back to something that's happened in their past. It's very interesting. Well, yeah. And I think there's a DNA element too, genetic element where, you know, it it exists like anxiety exists in families now you go. <laughs> so it's it's a little bit of both, but I think because you know the parents have anxiety and emotional volatility, then the kids have it as well, plus the genetic element. Oof, man, that's uh, you got me there, John. Whose love did you crave most growing up, and who did you have to be to get it? Um, I think it's a great question. I think it's an easy question actually for me um, because the immediate answer that comes to mind is my mom and dad, and. You know, I think that in order to get it, my my interpretation was that I need I needed to achieve at a high level. I needed to be perfect. I needed to not create problems. Um, and I'm sure they would disagree with that. But I I think that I was busting my ass to excel in every area of life in an attempt to get their attention and their love. And I remember in high school where I finally called them out on it and said, Hey guys, you know, you realize like I'm doing all this stuff so you can say, I love you. You said, and they were like, Oh yeah. Yeah. And they were like, Oh, we thought you knew that. Wow. You know, I, and, and so it's, it was interesting. And and then they were to their credit, they were actually much better about it after that. That's so interesting. So it wasn't, you know, most times when I ask this question, it's either one or the other, but for you, it was equally both mom, mother and father. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're both um, impressive individuals. And so, you know, I, I think I was, ch- I was chasing ghosts of memories. So I was kind of competing with their memories mm-hmm. and trying to do better than what they remembered they were doing at that same age, mm-hmm. which I did, but it's still, I found it to be empty. Yeah, it just was. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. That I mean, that's like the uh, one of the greatest problems in society is that comparison thing, isn't it? It's like oh, oh yeah, up to someone else. Yeah, and well, and it's amazing what we do. So there are upward and downward social comparisons. So when we when we do upward social comparisons, which was the vast majority of what we do, we're comparing ourselves to someone else or what someone else has. So it's so easy in the area I live in, for instance, to find someone that's better looking, to find someone with a better car, someone with a hotter wife, someone with a better house, someone with more money, someone with a fancier job title. But you can also go to competing with memories or you can compete with the past. And when we do those upward social comparisons, we're miserable. It it makes us, it adds to our misery. Whereas if we do downward social comparisons, we feel a little bit better. So just to be aware of the dynamic in your head 
and to begin to catch yourself when you're making the upward comparisons and practice making more downward ones. And, you know, the example I give to clients just to make it kind of concrete is I remember I, I was really competitive when I was like a teenager and I would compete in every area of my life with whoever was doing the best around me. So in math class, that meant I was always trying to get the best grade. And by the way, that's just a merciless, shitty way to live. Um, but when I was 16, 17, I was trying to get the best grade. So I would, you know, get my test back and I would go, oh, you know, 97%. Like, that's pretty good. And then I would ask some of my friends that were the smartest kids in the class, like, hey, what'd you get? And if I did better than them, I would feel good. But there was usually one person that would be like, oh, you know, I got 100. And then I'd be like, shit. And, and it's interesting to think that with that dynamic, you then feel lousy about a 97% on a math test. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and we all do this in a variety of ways, but you know, the, the solution to it is to remind yourself, well, Hey, I did better than 27 kids out of 30 in this class. Yeah. Yeah. We don't look at the bigger picture or the, the whole picture. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's one of the, yeah, I mean, we can go down this, this is a whole nother topic in itself. A rabbit hole. Uh -huh. and, but uh, it's really good for you to, to hear that from you as well. Like it is something that I think a lot of people have to come back to consistently. So it's social media, the rise of social media, I think really kicks that off, doesn't it? Like, it yeah, it does. It's when we think that's why it leads to so much depression and anxiety because you're comparing yourself on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever it is, mm -hmm. to these carefully quaffed manicured pictures of the best moments in other people's lives but you know kind of all the where all the skeletons are hiding in your own life you know the pain and suffering of your own life you compare your whole life or broad aspects of it to these best aspects of other people's lives like oh man i want to be on that 60 million dollar yacht in the bahamas mm -hmm. How come I can't do that? And then we feel lousy again. And we know that the longer you spend on social media, generally most people feel more depressed and anxious if they're doing that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's interesting, man. What about, talk to me a little bit about the lowest point of your life now, John. Like we go, we're going down a little ditch here in a bit, just for a little bit. What, what was one of the lowest points in your life? And I ask this question to every man, was suicide? Mm -hmm. Oh, well, um, I, I think I've had suicidal thoughts in the past. Um, I never get, you know, and I've talked to a lot of people about suicidal ideation and I never get that freaked out about it because I think honestly, for the vast majority of us, having a suicidal thought here or there is pretty normal. Mm. I, I mean, I think that life at some point gets to the place where it's so incredibly painful and difficult and it just feels like you're slogging through four feet of mud and head just starts talking and that inner critic gets really loud and mean and everyone that I've talked to about suicide they just want that inner critic to shut the fuck up mm. and and so the 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 thought of suicide is really the the desire for cessation of consciousness so it's really just, I just want to turn this off. I just want to quiet my head. Mm. And it's not really that most people want to end their lives. It's that they just want their head to shut up. Mm -hmm. And that makes complete sense to me. So that's kind of the, I guess, the backstory to the question. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the answering the question. Um, so you were asking about the lowest point in my life. It's, it's a really good question. Um, and, you know, I've had a few lows in life. And, you know, usually they culminate in like a depressive episode. 
you know, it might be a week, two weeks, maybe two or three months. Um, but the, the hardest part of my life was after I separated from my wife, we'd been married about 16 years, a uh, high school sweetheart. We have four kids together. And then we went through a divorce and the divorce was, uh, was far more contentious than it really needed to be. And, you know, the, the big part of that was we had agreed not to litigate because we really didn't have much to fight over in terms of, you know, wealth. Um, and I was like, you know, take the house, take everything in the house. That's fine. Um, and I was voluntarily paying her pretty much everything I made that year. I, I kept nothing. Uh, in fact, I paid her so much that I had to borrow money from my dad to pay my taxes because I'd forgotten about taxes. And at a certain point after 11 months of that, and just because I thought it was the right thing to do. I mean, I just, I was like, here, take this, like, you know, keep the kids in the house. And I thought it was kind of a stand up thing to do. And then I stopped that because I needed to save to get my own place because for that 11 months, I was actually living with my parents, God bless them. Mm. And, um, as soon as I stopped paying her, she went and found like one of the meanest, most aggressive attorneys out there and not only litigated against me, she litigated against my parents. Mm -hmm. So she tried, she knew there wasn't deep pockets with me. So she tried to get at some of my parents' money. Wow. And I was like, and, and that just, I was like, are you kidding? Like I've, like I've dealt with a lot of divorces. I've never heard of that. Yeah. And you know, then it just became contentious in court. And it was three and a half years in court. Um, and, you know, I was depressed shortly after separating and then kind of picked myself back up. Um, through that divorce process, that litigation, I lost contact with two of my four children. They were alienated from me. So I don't talk to them anymore. Um, and that, that took a little bit of um, reframing. How so? And reframing and what? Well, reframing, I think, in the sense that I had to get past the point of my own hurt so that I could reach out to them. And then I reached out to them over and over and over via text, email, phone. Um, and at a certain point, after you know, you don't get a response to you know a hundred attempts. You know, it, at that point, it's their choice. And they're adults now, you know, they're over 20. So it's their choice. Mm -hmm. And so I've got to make peace with the fact that, in my opinion, they're missing out. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I don't have any control over that. Mm. Are, you, are you a different person now, like a much different person now through after that process than what you were during the marriage? Absolutely. I mean, I think, and, and I forget if we talked about this in the first half of this interview, but you know, I think my primary emotion when I was younger, like in my teens was sadness slash depression. And then it became in my, well, in my mid twenties, when I got to Cal in, in the PhD program it became anxiety and stress. And then when I was in my marriage towards the end of my marriage, when there was things going on, um, that my ex-wife was doing that were problematic for me, uh, it became anger and irritability. So I had to work on all of those in stages. And so once I had gotten out of the marriage, I had learned how to manage that anger mm. and stress and sadness. And so, 
you know, I kept telling myself when I was in litigation that, look, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And it's primarily an emotional marathon. Mm. It's who can take this the longest. Mm. And, you know, and I was happy to settle, but for something reasonable and the other side wasn't being very reasonable. And so mm. I was pretty confident they could handle the stress um, in a worthwhile manner. And it turned out to be quite true. And it, it ultimately it worked out well for me in the end um, because I was just honest and consistent throughout the process. And the judge saw that and rewarded me at the end. Mm. Wow, man. I really appreciate you sharing that. It's definitely, uh, I can imagine like just even going through that with just having four children and that through that whole process, just the emotional burden on you was that something that was coming up like for a couple of years or was it sprung on you just for people that might resonate with that story you know just um maybe even going through that process now like was it something that you could see coming for yourself well i, I the, the divorce you mean the separation and divorce divorce yeah the separation um yeah it was a um i think it was a, a gradual increase in both of our irritability and discontent and um, I started realizing that she was doing some things that were unethical that I had known about for a long time, but I thought it was just that. Yeah. And as I kind of looked more deeply, it became a lot of who she was, in my opinion. I'm sure she would disagree with that. But um, And then we had these parenting problems. One of our children is oppositional defiant. So you say yes, he says no, basically. And she was undermining my parenting consistently. And, you know, when you've got a PhD in psychology with an expertise in child psychology, it, it seemed to make sense to me that, hey, why don't you listen to the guy that has eight years of training in this? Um, but she was so convinced that, you know, she knew more um, based on nothing uh, that she would just undermine my parenting. And it wasn't like I was being a dick and just saying, you have to do it this way. I was trying to have conversations, but she would just go behind my back and around me. And okay. um, so I finally realized, um, and there, were, there was one incident where, uh, so this, this same son was stealing from everyone in the family. And it's hard to catch a thief in your family when there's four kids. And there was one day he came and he said, uh, hey, you know, do you mind if I take a shower up in your room? And I was like, yeah, sure, it's fine. So he goes up there and he was about eight at this time, seven, eight. and he goes up and I, I thought, oh, you know, I left my wallet out on my nightstand. And so I knew exactly how much cash I had in there because I'm, I'm counting at this point. And I run up there, he's in the shower, I open my wallet, I'm 40 bucks short. And so I just sat outside of the shower, waited for him to get out and said, you know, do you know why I'm sitting here? And he said, yeah. And I said, where is it? And he opened up a little like Altoids tin or something. And there was my 40 bucks. And I said, okay, I need you to go to your room and stay there until mom gets home from work. And then we'll figure out what the consequences are. Because at this point, I've already been accused of having an anger problem, which there was reasons for that, but it's my anger. So my problem. Um, so in the meantime, and this was the dynamic, he heads downstairs to his bedroom, picks up the phone, calls his mom at work. And my boys used to lie to her about what was going on at home if I was at home and she was working. Mm. And I don't know what he told her, you know, dad's beating me or 
flicking lit cigarette butts at me. I don't know what he was saying, but it, you know, she goes, Oh my God, get out of the house. Like go to your friend's house. So before I could even get downstairs, he's out the front door in pants, you know, kind of throwing his shirt on as he's running and he's gone. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like if you didn't just reward him for stealing money, you definitely gave your blessing to it. And so it was things like that where I just, it, like my mind just got paralyzed with disgust almost like at, at what she was doing. And I had the realization, well, I'm actually better off being away from her and parenting separate from her than I am staying in this system and giving this system my approval. Yeah. Yeah. That's... And at that point I thought I got to get out of this. This is, this is really unhealthy. Yeah. That's very interesting, man. I feel that. What was like, if you did you ever, do you ever look back at that whole situation and, and take a lesson out of it? Or like, have you, have you like realized what that was really valuable for in your life? Oh yeah. I mean, a lot of, a lot of lessons, but the biggest one is really, cause I, I think it's really, really important when you go through those dark, painful, shitty times in your life, which there's going to be some to ask the question, what am I supposed to learn from this? Yeah. Like what's the lesson in this for me? Uh-huh. Um, Cause I do believe that you'll be presented with lessons in life and they'll keep hitting you over the head until you learn the lesson. Uh, I agree. Um, and, and this one I, I think was, it was a chance to really practice, really practice at the most difficult time of my life, emotional management skills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, because, you know, there was things being said about me that weren't true. You know, she was saying things about me to her clients that weren't true. Mm. So you got to get comfortable with that, like to have someone that's bad mouthing you and, and saying untrue stuff about you in the, in the community. Um, and, and so, yeah, it was kind of a, it was a, it was filled with, with lessons. Wow, man. You really had to like really remember who you are, like in that process, like yeah. words can change who you are. Whew, that's, yeah. That's a, that's a. That was a big, and then and then you got to go. You have to go through this discovery process of who am I after that? Like, yeah. what do I like to do? What are my values? Which I think that's a really useful process too. Yeah, after sixteen, because I think we 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 can get lost in marriage, particularly men. Yeah, and we lose our identity in ourselves, and women too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just work with men, so yeah. What what about the moment of awakening for you? What was a significant moment of awakening into this path that you're on now? Um, I, you know, I started dating, so I've, I've been together with my fiance now for five years and she is a therapist and quite skilled at communication and emotional management. And I remember we had been going out about, um, I think it was three months or so. And I had come over to her house. It was a weekday. We were going to have dinner because the kids were at the other parents' houses. And so we have dinner and she knows immediately if I'm a little bit off emotionally. And so at the end of the night, I, you know, gave her a hug and a kiss and I said, Hey, listen, I'm sorry. I've, I was a little bit off. Um, it's just work stuff and I'm just kind of stressed and, and tired and a little bit um, just burnt. And she looked at me and she said, you know what? You never have to apologize for how you're feeling. My job is to accept all of you, no matter what you're feeling. And I was like, what the fuck? 
<laughs> and you know, like my jaw hit the floor. Like no one's ever told me that before. You know how many times it's, you know, I've been like, oh, you don't need to feel that sad or, oh, you know, you shouldn't feel this or you shouldn't feel that or don't feel this. I mean, that's the norm. And so for someone to say, hey man, whatever you're feeling is fine. You're good. It, and it, it really unlocks you and it gives you permission to feel whatever it is you're feeling. So now we can have these talks about, you know, hey, I'm a little bit annoyed or I'm kind of feeling stressed or I'm really down or whatever it is. And there's no judgment about it, My. which allows us to get through them much more quickly. That's what a lady. What a lady. Yeah, she's amazing. So much respect to that. And I think that is so powerful. And the fact that, I mean, yeah, she's a therapist, she's a communicator. Communication is probably like the biggest game changer for you in your relationship now, right? Like it is. Yeah. Coming from that. Well, yeah. But yeah, I was looking for someone with really good emotional management skills, really high integrity. Um, and I got lucky and I found her. <laughs> That's beautiful, man. I love that. It's really good for a man too, to be able to feel safe opening up and expressing himself in front of a female like that. And she's just there saying, you're allowed to feel exactly how you feel. Yeah, because I, you know, it's funny. I, I deal with a lot of couples and there's a lot of women out there that are kind of like, well, where's all the emotionally intelligent men? And, and I get that sentiment and I, I do sympathize with them. And yet because women grew up in that same man box culture as men did, a lot of times I've heard from a lot of men or teenagers where they're like, yeah, you know, I, I was really depressed and I started crying in front of my girlfriend and my girlfriend told me to stop being a pussy. Mm. And so, you know, it's, it's like, I get that they want emotionally intelligent men. And at the same time, you know, they've got to learn to receive those emotions without judgment. Mm -hmm. And, and that takes a little bit of work. It does. I think we both, we both have to work on that. Um, but when you get there, it's, it's quite amazing. Yeah. 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 I'm very lucky that that situation now in my current relationship, but just in general, like it's like almost like a bar that you don't want to go below now because you've had that ability to be so emotionally open and connected. It's like that mm -hmm. now. And for a lot of men, that's really strange. So it's like trying to get to that new standard is the current, maybe the current challenge, but just know that I think it's really empowering for anyone listening that you do have that, that two-way open communication and understanding of, of your feelings. I think it's really powerful, man. Yeah. Did you go on a healing journey, you know, after your marriage? Did you go do any healing work? And if you did, um, what modality did you use? What modality? Well, so about two or three years into that same relationship with my fiance, um, we went to a Dan Millman retreat in Costa Rica. What was that? Was that good? And for those, for, for those of you that don't know, Dan Millman wrote The Way of the Peaceful Warrior. He's also written about, I don't know, 15 other books, one of which is a sports psychology book that Phil Jackson used to have the Lakers and the Bulls read every year. Um, and so he, he was kind of talking and lecturing and had some experiential stuff. And then we, but I think the more, the more healing stuff was these, they had these next level like body workers. Like there was masseuses there. And I remember I, I had this one massage and she's massaging my back. And she said something like, um, do you have a son? And, and I was like, oh, we're, we're talking. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, so I was like, yeah, I, I have two. And, and she was like, oh, okay. And, and she kept going. She kept asking questions. And she was like, yeah, you know, it, it feels to me like you've got some multi-generational work to do with the men in your family, like your father and your son 
And, and, and I was just like, what? The? Again, you know, kind of that WTF reaction, like what? And, and that was the theme through this whole week. And so that was really healing. And then the other part of it, which blew my mind and I didn't anticipate, we did this, um, a sound meditation. And my fiance had done this a year prior and she was like, you've got to do this. This lady's phenomenal. And I was like, okay, cool. I'll check it out. But it was basically a woman with um, instruments like huge singing bowls or shamanic chimes or drums with like elk skin, like, you know, these very kind of traditional shamanic instruments. And then she would walk us through a meditation using the instruments. And so you get relaxed and she's kind of guiding you through this visual imagery. And, you know, you go into a forest and you meet the spirit animal and she had picked out the spirit animal ahead of time. So it was an elk in this case. And you're supposed to like get on the back of your spirit animal and then see where it took you. And so I did, you know, I'm laying on the floor and I'm, my imagination is off and running and I'm riding the elk through the forest. We, we hop over a little Creek and then we go into a cave and we go way back into this dark cave. And at the very end, there's kind of this treasure chest that's backlit. And I get off the elk and I, I open up the treasure chest and inside the treasure chest was a bunch of recording equipment and a laptop, like microphone, amp, all that stuff. And I was like, oh shit, I got to do a podcast. <laughs> no. So I, you know, I, I kind of joke that my podcast could be called The Reluctant Podcaster. <laughs> You're like, I don't want to do this shit, man. Seriously? Yeah. Well, it's, it's risky, right? To go out there and talk about masculinity and men and women. That, like, mm. People get pissed about that. People get really defensive about that. And yet, at the same time, I'm, I think it's one of the more important topics to talk about. I think that I, I truly believe that if we heal the men, we heal the world. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. I feel that. I, I'm on. I, I love that. I want to just like touch on that because first of all, Dan Millman, that guy. I read the Peaceful Way of the Peaceful Warrior, and I'm like, I was that. I was there, man. I was him. What's his name? Um, oh, yeah, I don't know. Character with his daughter. Um, anyway, I was him, and I'm like fully in it, and I'm like, this is ringing. This is singing to my soul. Yeah. Uh, and I only just saw Dan Milman. I went to this really good bookstore here and he had all his books there and he's got so many different books. But I'm really intrigued. Like, what was that general in that retreat? Like, was do you know, were you going down there for more of a spiritual nature? Because his, he seems to me like he can, like you said, he's got a book for Phil Jackson. He's like sort of like tethering the worlds a little bit. Mm -hmm. Was it a dedicated spiritual retreat? Um, it, it, yeah, it was It was a week-long retreat. Um there was a lot of spiritual themes that he touched on. Um, there was a lot of um, like we broke boards, you know, kind of karate chop kind of thing, which I had never done before. And that was kind of cool. Um, and it, it was, it was great. I mean, I'm really glad I went, but a little bit of his content, I was um, a little disappointed in like he got into numerology in a big way. Cause he had just written a book about that. And I was like, yeah, I guess, I mean, you know, I, I kind of wanted more of that way of the peaceful warrior kind of stuff. Um, or I think he's got another book, 12 laws of spirituality or spiritual attraction. That's really good too. So I, I think he's, it's kind of like going to see the rolling stones or the who, right? They've got a huge library of stuff to pull from. Yeah. And you just hope that you hear your favorite songs. 
<laughs> and so I heard most of my favorite songs. Okay, cool. That's awesome, man. I love that. I wonder if he's still doing it. But he's a great man. I mean, he's amazing. Yeah. He's, he's 70 and he can still, he would do a handstand on a metal folding chair. You're kidding. Does he live down there? It's like, no, he lives uh, in North Bay here in California, okay. uh, I believe. And he, he just, he stayed in incredible shape. Mm, that's awesome, man. What about your friend group, John? How's that changed as you've changed? Uh, another great question. So I, one of the experiences I had is when I came out of my marriage, the people that I thought were my friends, my male friends, uh, were greatly disappointing. Um, and I, I think one of the things since that I've talked to a lot of divorced people about is I think the people that, so when you're in a couple, your friends are usually couples and that's safe for everyone involved. Mm -hmm. And when you become single, I don't think, I think a lot of couples can view you consciously or subconsciously as a threat to the, the couple, the, the marriage. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of, either they pick sides or they just are like, nah, no, we're good. We, you know, and so, I mean, I asked out, you know, a few men when my marriage was kind of on the rocks and said, you know, Hey, can we go for a drink? And nobody stepped up and it was, it was disappointing. Um, and so I had to reinvent my friend group when I got out mm. and, and I made a really conscious effort to do so. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, surround myself with guys that, um, had big hearts that were loyal, that have some emotional awareness. And some of them worked out, some of them not so much. But, you know, now I've got a pretty nice group of friends that we do stuff with. Um, well, before COVID, we did stuff regularly. <laughs> well, the you know, we'd meet each other every Tuesday. Oh, that's awesome, man. It's funny because it's like it's a consistent theme with every man in this in this series that, and in my own life. Like it it's one of those essential parts as you sort of evolve, like you said before, like we're really living from our, our priority of values and that as our values change, we want to spend more time doing those new values. And if people aren't in alignment with that, it's a natural change. It's not like you have to really almost seek it out. It just happens naturally, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. What, what part of your conscious journey? I've got two questions for you, man. What part of your conscious journey are you most grateful for? Of my conscious journey, what part of my journey or um, my conscious journey? Um, journey, say, I would say for you would be like post uh, your whole journey. Let's say your whole journey. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's funny because I figured out, um, you know, when I was 17 that I feel like we're kind of fed that story of BS that I think we touched on that before of, um, you know, get good grades, go to the best college or university that you can find someone, get married, make money, make more money, and then you retire and then you're happy. Um, and I, I'm, I feel fortunate that I clued in that that wasn't everything was cracked up to be at a young age, because I feel like ever since the age of about 17, I've been on a quest to solve that problem. And the problem is what is a good life or, how do you lead a happy and fulfilling life? Because mm -hmm. I, I really think that's ultimately what we're all after. Mm -hmm. And so looking at, you know, how do you turn down the volume on the negative emotions, negative thoughts? How do you turn up the volume on the positive thoughts, positive emotions? Uh, how do you find meaning? How do you get more engaged in life? How do you live a life according to your values? Um, how do you even figure out what your values are? Mm -hmm. And 
that has served me really well. And it's taken me into some really um, interesting situations, situations I never, I, I never would have dreamt of. And it's really all from following my passion, which is kind of learning to manage the emotional mind. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful, man. Very beautiful. It's following that heart. What's one tip, John? What's one tip, right? This is the last question. One tip that you would give your old self if you were looking at him right now and he's just starting this journey, maybe post-separation post or... Um, you know, I, I think stay the course. Um, I think that I've done a pretty good job throughout my life of following my heart, following my passion, and I'm... I'm pleased with the way that it's worked out. And so I guess I would say, you know, there are going to be significant challenges along the way. Uh, Don't lose heart. Mm. Just keep on keeping on. And yeah, I think the other thing that I would tell myself at a young age is stick with uh, meditation in a bid to build self-awareness and metacognition. Um, you know, there's this re- recent research by Tasha Yurik has showed that, you know, if you ask people if they're self-aware, about 95% of us will say, hell yeah, I'm self-aware. I know myself. And in truth, the research shows it's about 10 to 15%, mm. which explains a lot of what's going on in the world right now to me. Mm-hmm. Because we think we're self-aware. We think we know how we're impacting people. We think we're managing our emotions. We don't think we're angry. And yet... We are, and we have no awareness of it. And so I I think, you know, to build that metacognition, that thinking about thinking or that awareness of what's going on internally in your mind and in your heart is incredibly important. Yeah. And you would say meditation would be the number one thing to help that. Yeah. I think it builds awareness. It builds attentional control. Um, It teaches you the difference between that sympathetic nervous system being activated and the parasympathetic. So the stress response versus the relaxation response. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of times our emotions take over us and we have no clue. I can't tell you how many people that are dealing with anger I've talked to that just are not aware in the moment that they are angry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So without that awareness in the moment, it's pretty hard to change some of these habits. Yeah. Yeah, man, I totally feel that. I've said that like number one to a lot of my clients and people that I know is just self-awareness comes from like a good meditation practice. So I'm really pleased to hear you say that, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that that positive bias. But that's that's us, man. We've wrapped up, you know, had to do this interview in two parts just for timing sakes, but I've really enjoyed both parts in this whole interview with you, John, and I really appreciate you opening up about your own personal life to help others grow on their journey, man. So thank you so much for your time and and for being here with me. Absolutely, Luke. It's been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, me too, man. And thank you to everyone for listening. If you do want to reach out, this is the last episode of 2020. So if you do want to reach out to me, hit me up on Instagram. Or you can connect with John as well and and reach out and, and share this with those who need it most. Thank you very much and take care and have a beautiful rest of 2020. Whoa, man.
love and just be I got love in my eyes, bro, I can't see I'm gonna be who I'm destined to be Wokeness is taking my old self away Yeah, I put love into me I'm spreading that love, yo, don't you see Grab your cacao and drink it with me Cause wokeness is taking my old self away Woke man, wokey woke man Woke man, wokey woke man Woke man, wokey woke man Bring love and just be Woke man, wokey woke man Woke man, wokey woke man Woke man, wokey woke man Bring love and just be